0: Three is on page 583, and 84 is it? 584. Okay, and what verse are you going to start reading to Starting us? Starting
1: from? from verse 16.
0: Okay, so Lamentations <coughs> chapter 3, verse 16. Thanks, Joanne.
1: The children will recognise this verse. Anyone who's a Colin Buchanan fan will recognise this this passage. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering with bitterness, sorry, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Amen.
0: As you know, the last four years have seen dramatic change in the Middle East. And virtually everywhere we go, people ask us, well, what actually is going on? Um, is all these dramatic things happening in the Middle East genuinely a move to democracy? Or will it see the rise of Islamic powers? Or when the dust settles, will we simply have a change of dictators? And Karen and I could spend hours trying to unpack the politics of the Middle East and the chances are that our analysis would be wrong. Because the Middle East is in fact an extremely confusing and incomprehensible part of the world. Now of course, life in general is often pretty confusing and incomprehensible. Um, At our college we have students from all over the Middle East and as our uh, Iraqi and Syrian and Egyptian and Sudanese students are preoccupied with the unsettledness and the war in their own country, locally in Lebanon we've also been facing a major crisis in our own college. One of our emerging faculty is also the pastor of one of our local churches, late 30s, two young children, is dying of cancer um, and we ask you know, why are you doing this God we are, have such a shortage of quality leaders why is it that this quality leader is suffering in this way and why is the church suffering in this way now of course you don't need to live in the Middle East to ask that question what is God doing I'm sure that many, if not all of you, at some point in your lives have asked the question, is God even there? What is happening? Why is God doing this? Um, I've met Christians who have children at school experiencing bullying or struggling academically. And you say, why doesn't God help? I've met uh, believers in their mid-fifties who um, due to a retrench, due to a downsizing of their company, with minimal hope of finding another job to pay the bills. Where is God? Children of faithful people drift far from the faith and wander pointlessly into adulthood. And you wonder, what is God doing? The list could go on and on, and I'm sure some of you, even now, are passing through periods where you wonder, where is God in the midst? What on earth is God doing in the middle of the chaos? This morning I'm going to share to you two biblical truths. One very uncomfortable and one full of hope. The first truth is that chaos in life is normal and expected. The second is that the key to handling the chaos and mess of life is hope in God's sovereignty and love. The Bible teaches two central realities. The first reality is that evil is to be expected. Paul makes this abundantly clear in Romans 3 when he writes, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Jesus is a bit more blunt when he says, in this world you will have trouble. This reality has been well observed by others. Dostoevsky once wrote, I think if the devil doesn't exist, but man has created him, he has created him in his own image and likeness. Or Niebuhr, a great Christian ethicist, once wrote, original sin is perhaps the only Christian doctrine that's empirically verifiable. A book came out some time ago entitled The Day America Told the Truth. The authors did an extensive study of all 50 states of the United States. They included younger people, older people, men and women, people of all races and economic backgrounds. And they discovered a disturbing truth that only 13% of Americans consider all Ten Commandments as binding and relevant. Most Americans lie regularly to their families, to their friends, and to their associates. Americans admit goof- goofing off at work an average of seven hours a week. One half of the workforce regularly calls in sick, although they admit they feel perfectly well. Finally, the clincher was when they asked, what would you be willing to do for $10 million? $10 million. 25% of those surveyed said that they would abandon their families for $10 million. 23% they would, engage, they, they would engage in prostitution for a week. And 7% said they would commit murder for $10 million. Now, we good Christians say, ah, oh, that's just those pagans out there. Um, unfortunately, another piece of research would suggest that we're not really that much better Uh, Doug Sherman and Bill Hendricks wrote a book called Keeping Your Ethical Edge Sharp and when they did research amongst Christians they discovered that Christians are as likely as non-Christians to falsify income tax returns, to plagiarise printed materials, to bribe someone in order to obtain a building permit, to shift the blame for wrongdoing onto someone else, to illegally copy a computer program or to steal from the workplace. Sin is alive and well, even among conservative Christians. And if I'm really honest, it's pretty obvious in me as well. Now, we don't actually like to talk about sin today. Uh, it's not particularly politically correct to describe people as sinful. The word itself largely uh, lost its meaning. We see this sort of thing in the advertising, terms like "It's sinfully delicious." don't resist the temptation the sort of advertising we get this is actually an appeal to our natural sinful inclinations but an acknowledgement that the good world that god created has been deranged and perverted this is actually a foundational christian belief it doesn't excuse the evil in any way it doesn't make the evil right it doesn't even make the experience of evil any less unpleasant. But it does remind us that the work of Christ on the, while the work of Christ on the cross is complete, we nonetheless live as theologians describe it. We live between the already of the work of the cross and the not yet of Christ's return. And that in this period, while we have the power of the Holy Spirit we nonetheless live with evil. And our own experience of tragedy, suffering, violence and pain, physical, emotional and spiritual, will remain with us until Christ returns. In short, the Bible makes no bones about it. Chaos is a normal part of life. Pretty depressing, but then we come to the second and even more important reality. And that reality is that God is sovereign. Even when all we see is evil, sometimes in this world we can become so focused on the evil that we see in society that we become overwhelmed and we forget God's sovereign power. One person said this way, told me this: We should respect the devil, but be impressed by God. This was actually the struggle that Jeremiah, had to overcome in Lamentations. When Karen and I were married, the final hymn at our wedding was that old favourite, Great is Thy Faithfulness, which is based on a verse from today's passage, Lamentations 3.23. And people love this verse, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Um, And for Karen and me, to a certain extent, it's been a theme verse of our marriage. But the power and significance of its verse takes on new meaning when we look at it in its context. The book of Lamentations was written immediately after the destruction of Jerusalem. The setting of the book is in the ruins of this once great city. Through the first two and a half chapters of the book of, Revelation, uh, book of Lamentations, we see Jeremiah wandering around the ruins, grieving the city's death, and weeping over what once was, which is why it's called Lamentations. On one hand, Jeremiah sees the evil of the people and the justice of God. On the other, he wonders where this selfsame God is. While Jeremiah himself had predicted the destruction of Jerusalem, the shock was no less. His internal life mirrored the chaos and ruins of the city. This affirmation in Lamentations 3.23 was actually an act of faith. In the face of chaos, Jeremiah clung to the sovereignty and faithfulness of God. We often forget what a confusing story the Bible is. I'm about to give you my one-minute summary of the Bible. If we think about it for a moment, God calls Abraham out of Ur into Canaan. But when he gets there, the only thing he ever actually owns is his tomb. Through Joseph, the people are saved from famine, only to be led into 400 years of slavery. Finally and miraculously, they are rescued in the Exodus and then wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They arrive in the Promised Land, only to become even more evil, Than the people whose place they took. So after a few centuries of the good, the bad, and the ugly, the people are sent into exile for 70 years. Finally, God restores them, and after a few brief words, remains silent for 400 years. When he next he speaks, he comes not as a conquering king, but as a baby born in a manger. The baby grows into a humble carpenter who turns out to be the Messiah and so, of course, is murdered. This Messiah rises from from the dead only to disappear in the clouds a few weeks later. The spirit comes, the church is established and grows only to experience the same sort of challenges and chaos chaos inside and out. What on earth is God doing? What an incredibly confusing and chaotic story. Much of the Bible comes to us in the form of narrative, and I guarantee that if any of us had written the story, it would have a much happier ending than the ending that we see in the Bible. And yet, as we look at the overall flow of the story, we can see God's steady hand, God working his purposes out, God's sovereign work through his people. The story of the church is no less confusing. And yet here also we see God's sovereign hand. When Rome was sacked at the time of Augustine, many people were expecting the total destruction of Christianity or the return of Christ. Neither happened. What we ended up seeing was the beginning of the Christianization of Europe. The Catholic missions in China in 1690 were so thriving it looked as though Christianity was firmly planted and could never be uprooted. A century later, nothing tangible remained of the work. When missionaries were expelled from China during the 1950s, most people thought the same thing would happen, that the small, seemingly ill-equipped church in China would not survive. Today, as most of you know, estimates of the church number of Christians in China is somewhere between 30 and 150 million. No one really knows. Who would have guessed 50 years ago that Christians in Korea today would account for nearly 50% of the population or today that there would be more Muslims than Methodists in Great Britain? In the Middle East, we've seen something of the same. We've seen Christians leaving the region in their droves. We see villages in Syria and Lebanon, previously 100% Christian, now with barely a person over, under the age of 60. Who would have thought about it 100 years ago? Meanwhile, the Presbyterian missionaries who served faithfully in Iran for over 100 years ago expected the, revolution, the Islamic Revolution of 1979 to destroy the church. Instead the last 30 years have seen this massive people movement of persian muslims to christ arab world ministries began ministry in algeria in 1876 after more than a hundred years of faithful service the algerian church in 1990 numbered less than 2000 at that point with the coming of an islamic government and the expulsion of the few remaining christian workers Pessimism was very high in the church. Yet quietly God was at work. And there was this people movement that began in the mountains and it has swelled in Algeria until today with believers from almost uni- universally a Muslim background, the church numbers nearly 100,000. That's more than the evangelical church in Lebanon, Syria, Jordan and Palestine put together. What is God doing? If you think you know the answer, the chances are you're wrong. His ways are not our ways, but he does have a purpose. There's an old hymn that says God is working his purposes out. And it's true. He's working his purposes out. For many believers, the book of the Revelation is a closed book. Just totally incomprehensible. In it's complex imagery. It's apocalyptic language. And I think this is unfortunate for the church to which the book of Revelation was delivered actually bears a lot of similarity to the church today, here in Australia and in the Middle East. A struggling church in a hostile environment with rising opposition to its existence and internally with divisions, lukewarmness and loss of first love, threatening its internal fabric. I'm sure that a lot of believers then, as today wondered whether the, church, the survival of the church was even a possibility. And yet it was into this context that these beautiful images of the revelation were delivered. Now there's always been argument over the meaning of the details of the imagery, but the overall message of the book is abundantly clear. And that message is that the victory has already been won. The kingdom has already been established. Christ is even now seated on the throne. Yes, the forces of evil continue to work. We see war, we see disease, we see economic ruin. But through all of this, Christ is already victorious. We don't need to despair at the evil around us. We don't need to live in fear of the future. Through the cross, evil has already been vanquished and we simply live in anticipation of the final revelation of that victory. The problem is, it's easy to say that. It's actually quite difficult to grab hold of that and to believe that. You know, even as I say it, I think, is this really true? Is Christ today on the throne? You know, It's not easy to hold on to this, but it is only through hope in God's sovereign power and ultimate victory, that we can really face the chaos of this world. How does this work out in practice? I'm aware that in the current economic climate, many Australians are struggling. I'm aware that depression in one of its clinical forms is a daily challenge to many people, maybe some of you. I have no doubt that some of you here today are struggling with sickness or grief. And I expect that there are other forms of life chaos that some of you are experiencing today. And part of my message is to say there's no easy answers. If I examine God's ways in the Bible and in history, I cannot make a promise that if you only believe everything will work out in the end. That's not a biblical principle and God doesn't work that way. But we can see God's greatness. And I'd encourage you to realize that you are part of something much larger. I hope that some of the stories of what God is doing elsewhere in the world has encouraged you. It greatly encourages me. We're part of something big. We are part of God's great plan to restore this fallen and broken world. And my encouragement to you today is to cling in hope to that reality to raise your eyes and see the bigger picture, to see that God is at work even in the midst of chaos. It may not solve all your economic, relational or health difficulties, but to find hope in God is very rich. Seven years ago, my world fell apart and I had a complete physical and emotional breakdown. I was sure it was the end of our missionary career and that our family would have to leave the Middle East. But my family had hope in God. They had a hope that God had not finished with us. That even in the midst of this chaos, God had his plans and purposes. And in retrospect, I see that that time was one of the most significant and formative experiences of my Christian pilgrimage. And that same principle can be at work in each of you. In the midst of chaos, God has not finished his work. God is working his purposes out. I pray that this month, this year, you can find that hope in God. And as you live that hope out in your lives, reflect God's sovereignty to those around you. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that you truly are our sovereign Lord, that you care for us, that you love us, Help us to find hope in you. And as we live in this world, to be agents of light, to the honor of Jesus. Amen.